right, you fools. You brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and peeping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? HPPodcraft.com <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. The stranger came early in February, one wintry day, to a biting wind and a driving snow, the last snowfall of the year, over the down, walking from Bramblehurst railway station and carrying a little black portmanteau in his thickly gloved hand. He was wrapped up from head to foot, and the brim of his soft felt hat hid every inch of his face but the shiny tip of his nose. The snow had piled itself against his shoulders and chest and added a white crest to the burden he carried. He staggered into the coach and horses, more dead than alive, and flung his portmanteau down. A fire, he cried. In the name of human charity, a room and a fire. He stamped and shook the snow from off himself in the bar and followed Mrs. Hall into her guest parlour to strike his bargain. And with that much introduction... That and a couple of sovereigns flung upon the table, he took up his quarters in the inn. That was the introduction to The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, a classic novel of mischief and weird science, and we're going to be talking about it here all this month on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. And you know where else we're going to be this month? Mm, where's that? Necronomicon! Yes, that's right. That's the official theme song. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be monster trucks there. And uh, (laughs) I think that with a big giant robot that eats cars, that'll be there as well. Yep, sexy car washes. It'll be awesome. Guys shooting flames out of his uh, eyeballs, all kinds of stuff. But we're going to be there talking about some HP Lovecraft Saturday, August 24th at 12 noon. And that is in the Capitol Ballroom at the graduate providence which was formerly the biltmore i guess they changed yes. their name didn't know anything about that i know we're going to cover one of cm eddie's collaborations which one i don't know you'll have to wait and we're see still, we're still determining that but we're going to cover one of those ken height will be joining us as well as andrew lehman you know we've got the rogues gallery we'll be back yeah, in action the whole gang's gonna be there but then on that evening uh saturday night at 8 30 we are going to have the 10th anniversary of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast Party. It will be awesome. It's up on the 17th floor, the same place. It's a very beautiful view of the city. There'll be booze. There'll be Pfeiffer. There'll be me, Ken Hyde. Andrew Lehman's going to show up a little late because he's doing a Dark Adventure Radio Theater. But he's going to come in and just start kicking everybody's ass. <laughs> There's definitely going to be a couple of bar fights. It's going to be awesome. It's from 8.30 to 10 p.m. that night. And folks, you don't have to buy tickets to any of this stuff. You can just show up and hang out with us. That goes for the live show at noon as well as the party that night. We just want to see you. Yes. It's going to be super exciting. Necronomicon is always fun. I love it. It's a great time. And I'm looking forward to, to meeting you guys. Yeah, looking forward to hanging out with everybody. Speaking of travel, that'll be in Providence. We're going to have to travel there and meet up with each other. I just got back from a trip. As some of you may know, we're covering The Invisible Man. I'm dealing with a bit of an invisibility problem myself, <laughs> as in my invisible luggage. <laughs> I was in Georgia for six weeks or so. I was working on a movie that I co-wrote. It's called The Time Capsule. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are announcing it now, finally. I will go on and on about it once we've edited it, and there's places you can see it. 
probably yes. next year. But I, of course, had to pack all of my recording equipment when I went down there because when we were doing our Harlan, Harlan Ellison shows and whatnot, you know, I was down there while we were doing it. Yep. And I also live a pretty pared down life. So honestly, about everything I use frequently or hold dear, I had in one absurdly large black duffel bag for that trip. Mm -hmm. And on my return to Los Angeles about a week ago, it never came off the carousel. It vanished. And I normally try to avoid checking bags because I'm paranoid about that. But this was the one time where I was like, ah, it'll be fine. Mm. And it wasn't fine. No. After a week of atrocious customer service from American Airlines, the last I have heard so far, the bag is in China. Somehow, mm. another passenger on my flight left behind their similar bag. I took mine, I believe, and checked it through on a second international flight. So the thing's traveling around the world right now. Whether I ever see it again, I don't know. But all of this is to say that I'm recording today on some older equipment. Yeah. If the sound is not as good as it usually is, this is actually a mic microphone and machine I used to record the show on, mm -hmm. I don't know, five or six years ago yeah. or more. Brought it out, dusted it off. That's what I'm using. Hopefully the situation gets rectified soon. Thanks, everybody, for being patient with delays this caused this month. Yes. We wanted to put an end to that. We needed to talk about The Invisible Man. This is one of my favorite books, one of my favorite stories. By the way, who was that reader? Oh, my God. You have to ask. That was the amazing Greg Johnson. Yes. Excellent. Greg does all the HG Wells for us, among so many other things. Yeah. What's been going on with him these days? What's he up to? Oh my God, dude, he's got a great new album that just came out. It's called Dr. Snake and the Snake Doctors. The EP well. is his new musical comedy act. It's kind of got this mild-mannered, middle-class lyrics sort of thing, but it's sort of bluesy. You can get them on Bandcamp. Go and check this out. Go buy it. First, give it a listen and you'll go, oh yeah, this guy deserves my money and then give it to him. There you go. It's on Bandcamp, right? Yep, that's right. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, there's like a rootsy drinking song on there about pairing wine with, with food. And those are, <laughs> that's my favorite kind of stuff, man. Those are the real origins of rock and roll. <laughs> Not many people know this, but the first blues song was about a man who couldn't find a good camembert and settle for a brie. Mm, yes. <laughs> So this oh. book, The Invisible Man, yes. uh, was originally serialized in Harrison's Weekly. It was published as a novel that same year. Mm -hmm. And I read it first when I was a kid. I don't remember what age, but this is a great book for young folks, I think. Yeah, it's really accessible. I was surprised that the, the language is just really digestible and it's it's so quickly paced. I mean, all of his stuff seems to be H.G. Wells. Like, it's just, it yeah. just flies. The Invisible Man gets lumped in with this uh, pantheon of great horror characters, and that's kind of why we're doing it. But it's not really a, a scary book. No. It's no, more it's of not. a mad scientist tale, and it's um, definitely a great conversation starter. You know, part of the inspiration for this story was Plato's Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, Wells loved that book as a child. It was very influential on him. And in, in the second book of the Republic, the legend of the ring of uh, Gyges is recounted. Mm -hmm. And this is a magic ring found by the shepherd Gyges that can turn him invisible. Sure. If that sounds familiar at all, Lord of the Rings, etc. Yes. But yeah. the, the legend, it's a sort of meditation, as it's used in the Republic, it's a meditation on morality, whether we can act in a moral fashion if there are no consequences for what we yeah. do. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the Jekyll and Hyde book toys with as well. I mean, the basic story of the Ring of Gyges, it posits that if a man remained invisible and could act with impunity, he would go about among men with the powers of a god. Mm. That's what Kaiji's basically does. There's an earthquake one day that opens up the earth. It's very Lovecraftian, actually. And in there, there's a, there's this, I think it's a giant golden horse, and within that, there's a corpse, and on the corpse, there's this ring. That's the only thing Gaiji's takes out. And then he's at a meeting with the other shepherds. It's very boring, and he messes around with the ring, turns it around, and it turns him invisible. He's like, great. Immediately mm -hmm. uses the power to amass riches, kill his enemies. Eventually, he seduces the queen, and he kills the king and takes over the whole place. Wow. Because he can do all this without people knowing it's him. 
being able to catch him, because of his invisibility, he acts pretty immoral and, and selfishly. Right. In which this is the question. I mean, sometimes people say flight or invisibility, but the basic question there is, what would you do if you could turn invisible? Yeah, no good. No good. <laughs> right, it, I mean, the, it's inherently an evil power. The, what, what good thing could you do with it? Like, if you had super strength, you could lift heavy things off people that are being crushed, but... Being invisible just means you can sneak around and people can't see you. Maybe work as a spy for the government, but governments can be pretty corrupt and do pretty horrible things. So it's like, is that the moral thing to do with that superpower? There's kind of nothing moral you can do with it. Yeah, it's an inherently corrupting power. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, even if you're sneaking into places and leaving gifts for people, you're still sneaking <laughs> into places. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that might be why the Invisible Man ends up with the monsters, because once you introduce the power to somebody, it's just not going to go to Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. the James Whale film adaptation of this book starring Claude Rains is one of my favorite movies of all time. Top, yeah. top five. Yeah. And I've, I've mentioned it a lot on the show. And I look forward. I'm going to watch it again, of course, this month, because I, I watch it pretty frequently anyway. Yeah. Now I have an excuse. Folks, do yourself a favor. If you haven't seen that movie, check it out. It's fantastic. H.G. Wells wrote the original version of this book between March and June 1896. Originally, it was a 25,000-word short story titled The Man at the Coach and Horses, which mm. Wells was dissatisfied with, so he extended it. But The Coach and Horses is where we start, as we heard from the top. That's right. Well, let's get into the story. It begins in the English village of Iping uh, in Sussex, which Iping is a real place. I don't think that this is actually that Iping, but Iping is a, a a place down in Sussex. It is snowy, and in February, a stranger shows up at the Coach and Horses pub and inn, and he's all bandaged up. He's got these black glasses with covers on the sides. It's just his nose that's sticking out. He barges in, and he demands a room with a fire, because he's really cold, because he's been outside. The proprietor of the place, Mrs. Hall, comes in, and she bargains for a price. She's stoked, because they rarely have people stay there in the wintertime, and she's all about the Benjamins. Or the Sovereign. Well, yes, uh, sir. <laughs> the name of this first chapter is The Strange Man's Arrival. It is a pretty strange look this guy has all wrapped up like this. But I was thinking about it on this read. The title of the book is The Invisible Man. It's on the cover. Yeah. So if this were still the man at the coach and horses, you as a reader might be allied with the innkeeper and townspeople who are curious about what might be going on under those bandages. Right. You'd be on a little journey of discovery with them. Mm -hmm. But because he gives the concept away in the title, I mean, I would say it's pretty obvious what's going on with this guy. Right. Me, right yeah. away. So yeah. I think Wells knows it's actually more fun to be allied with the Invisible Man. We know his secret right away. Right. Now let's watch all these provincial types try to work it out. And I think that's what makes the opening of this book comic rather than mysterious, right? There's a mystery as to how the condition came about that will drive the narrative, you know, sure. who this man is. But there's no mystery about the condition itself. It's as if he's saying, you know, we're going to get to the backstory pretty soon, but let's have a little fun with this first. And I yeah. want you on the invisible man's side. You know, right. it's, it's, a, it's a neat trick he pulls off. Mrs. Hall offers to take the stranger's coat, but he refuses. She goes down and gets him some food. And then she returns. The room is very warm, but he still has all of his clothes on. She leaves and realizes that she forgot the mustard. She comes back and the stranger is holding a napkin over his face, which is a bit odd. He's also removed his hat and she sees that his whole head is bandaged up. As she can see black hair coming out between the bandages and she takes his boots to dry. Mrs. Hall leaves and returns downstairs. She thinks he's had some kind of accident and is horribly scarred, and that's why he's all bandaged up. She says he looked more like a diving helmet than a human man. <laughs> Mrs. Hall also has a servant girl, Millie, that she likes to yell at, oh, which yeah. doesn't have much to do with the plot at all, but is amusing. Mm -hmm. It's just these sketches of these people. And you know, all the characters in these opening scenes have this small-town, busybody, gossipy energy. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that these are some character types that Wells knew in his own life. 
and is having fun satirizing. Yeah. And this is also a, a bit of an inversion of your typical gothic scenario where the normal guy shows up and is cautioned by superstitious townspeople who are nevertheless in the know. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have the weirdo show up and the townspeople are totally clueless. You know, it's like right. kind of a neat, <laughs> kind of a neat. Yeah, I never thought about that thing. before. Yeah. That's a good point. So Mrs. Hall comes back and takes the stranger's dishes um, and she tells him that her sister's son, Tom, had a scythe accident, you know, trying to make him feel better about his perceived disfigurement. When she tells him the story, the stranger just laughs. And she's kind of put off by this because, you know, it was a horrible accident. This kid's disfigured now. And this guy just kind of chuckles at that story. <laughs> and she is kind of like, well, this guy's paying me a lot of money because he's throwing the sovereigns around like nobody's yeah. business. So she's going to just suck it up. And But in, her, in the back of her head, she's like, this guy's an asshole. Oh, totally. And also, she's she maybe is trying to make him feel better, but mostly she's trying to get the gossip, like, what's going on here? Because she also talks about some carriage accident, too. She's yeah. just hoping he'll volunteer something. Right. And he just blows her off. Get me some matches for my pipe and gets her out of there. After she leaves, she can hear him upstairs pacing and talking to himself. She gets us into Chapter 2, Mr. Teddy Henfrey's First Impressions. Mr. Teddy Henfrey is a clock jobber. Uh, he maintains and repairs clocks. Mrs. Hall takes Mr. Teddy into the parlor where the stranger seems to be sleeping facing the fire. And Teddy had just showed up for a drink, but she's making another attempt to get some information. Who knows if that clock needs to be fixed or not. Right. Know? So Mrs. Hall thinks she sees his mouth gaping open, but thinks it must be an illusion since the fireplace is the only light in the dark room. Yeah, it's a pretty creepy image. It says, for a second, it seemed to her that the man she looked at had an enormous mouth wide open, a vast and incredible mouth that swallowed the whole of the lower portion of his face. It was the sensation of a moment, the white-bound head, the monstrous goggle eyes, and this huge yawn below it. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's creepy. Uh, he wakes up and he puts his hand in front of his face, and then he grabs a muffler and covers up. She explains Mr. Teddy's there to fix the clock, and he's okay with that, but he asks for privacy, not to be disturbed while he stays there. Again, he flashes the bling, and she's fine with that. The stranger also wants to know when his boxes will arrive, and she says the next day, he seems impatient and explains that he is an experimental investigator and that those boxes are his equipment that he needs for his investigations. He says that he came into Iping for solitude and that the light bothers his eyes sometimes and that he needs to be in the dark alone with the door locked. The experimental investigator thing was a good move on his part. It's actually true, I think, of well, yeah. profession, but Mrs. Hall is pretty impressed by that. She says, eh, I thought as much to herself, which is like, what? You did not think that. <laughs> I love her character. Uh, the stranger is impatient with Ted, hurries him in his work. Ted thinks that this guy is a jerk, and Humphrey leaves the room and the pub, and then he runs into Mr. Hall. Ted tells Mr. Hall about the stranger and that Mrs. Hall is... Uh, too trusting, letting God knows who into their inn. So Hall heads back to the coach and horses, and Teddy feels better, letting it be Mr. Hall's problem now. And that gets us into chapter three, the thousand and one bottles. So the day after the stranger has arrived in Iping, the delivery guy, Fear Inside, brings his stuff to the inn in a cart. There's a few boxes, but one of the boxes is full of notebooks. There's all a bunch of test tubes and lab equipment. The stranger is a bit of an impatient jerk with Fear Inside. And then Fear Inside's dog goes nuts and starts barking and freaking out at the stranger. And then it attacks him, the stranger, and starts ripping at his glove and his pant leg. And the stranger just runs off and back into the inn to his room. Now, Mr. Hall goes in to see if the stranger is all right, but the room is dark. And it seems that the stranger's arm is missing his hand says he caught a glimpse of a most singular thing, 
what seemed a handless arm waving toward him. Then he was struck violently in the chest, hurled back, and the door slammed in his face and locked. Like the Invisible Man's already getting physical with these folks. So Mr. Hall goes back to see where Fear Inside is, and Mrs. Hall and some of the others have gathered there. All are talking about the dog attack. They ask Hall if the stranger is all right, and he says he didn't want any help. The stranger comes out, starts yelling at people to bring his stuff inside. Fear Inside apologizes, but the stranger says, I'm, I'm fine, I wasn't hurt. We don't know if that's true or not. No. It's a cool reveal of a weakness for the Invisible Man, actually, because if he gets hurt, how do you treat it? Yeah. You know, Obviously, he can't reveal himself to a doctor in this situation, but even if he could... The doctor wouldn't quite be able to see the wound. No. I mean, I guess he could put something over it, like a, some kind of talcum or something like that. Oh, right. I just feel like he'd accidentally sew his legs together or something. Oh. Whoops, that wasn't <laughs> the wound at all. So when they unload the boxes, they can see all these bottles of liquid. Some are labeled poison. The stranger unpacks them and he sets them up in the parlor room. Later, Mrs. Hall brings in the evening meal, but he's too into his work to notice that she's even there. She asks about all the packing straw in the room, meaning, are you going to clean this mess up? And he says, put it on my bill. She agrees and leaves. Can't be bothered with straw. He's got research to do. (laughs) The next afternoon, Mrs. Hall hears him breaking bottles and yelling to himself. I can't go on. 300,000, 400,000. The huge multitude cheated. All my life it may take me. Patience, patience indeed. Fool, fool! This is good, good mad scientist stuff going on there. So she brings him some tea, checking to see if everything's all right. Again, snooping, pretending to be nice, but she's just actually snooping. She notices the glass on the floor and points it out to him. And he says, put it on my tab. Yeah, he keeps saying, put these messes on my tab. But she also notices in the scene he hasn't taken anything out of the mini bar. The invisible <laughs> man is crazy, but he's not that crazy. <laughs> Seven dollars for a small can of Pringles? This is madness! (laughs) So when she comes out, Fear Inside and Teddy are there. Fear Inside speculates that the stranger is black because he saw only black when his pant leg was torn. Mm. Another guy points out his nose is pink. And Fear Inside says, well, he's patchwork colored. Like a half-breed is what he says. And I'm sure he's never heard of somebody with Vitaligo. Right. Well, I don't think Fear Inside's heard of anything. He's kind of (laughs) An idiot, he says. He's kind of a half-breed, and the colors come off patchy instead of mixing. So he actually thinks that's how it works. Yeah. That, yeah. It's not very <laughs> like smart. your top half would be white, and your lower half would be black or something. I mean, Wells really makes a meal out of these dummies speculating. He sure does. Gets us into Chapter 4. Mr. Cust interviews the stranger. So the narrator points out that despite these odd incidents, life in the Iping was pretty ordinary. The stranger would have his fights with Mrs. Hall, but always soothed them over with money. Up through late April, when it seems like the stranger starts running out of money, things are fairly ordinary. Now, you say the narrator, but this is a third-person story. Actually, Wells usually writes in the first person, but this is a third-person story. But you get hints that there's a character to that third person. Yeah. Here and there as you're reading it. You're right. uh, It's kind of interesting. It's almost like Wells is telling you this directly. That's the impression I got. It is a third-person narrative, but it Mm -hmm. also... But there's something in it that is gives me the sense of a character. You're absolutely right. I'm just repeating what you just said. (laughs) So the stranger never goes to church and he works all the time. He also never communicates with anybody outside of town. So there's no letters in or out. He talks to himself a lot and he seems to have dramatic mood swings with his work. One popular theory among the townspeople is that he's maybe an escaped criminal of some sort, all bandaged up in, in order to disguise himself. So he goes out at night from time to time. His presence in town is the source of lots of gossip. Some speculate that he might be an anarchist making explosives. I like this part. It says, Mrs. Hall was sensitive on the point. When questioned, she explained very carefully that he was an experimental investigator, going gingerly over the syllables as one who dreads pitfalls. 
When asked what an experimental investigator was, she would say with a touch of superiority that most educated people knew such things as that, and would thus explain that he discovered things. <laughs> Women even wonder if he has some connection to the supernatural. They are the smart ones, because I would just think that's a wrapped up ghost myself. I do think there must have been at least one townsperson who was holding onto the theory that he's actually a mummy. Oh, yeah. But mm -hmm. he was like a little embarrassed to say it, and he just never found the right conversation <laughs> to drop it in. <laughs> so we didn't hear about it in the story. But I know that townsperson was out there. So no one can agree on what is exactly up with this guy. Everyone is in agreement that they don't like him. He's rude and he's kind of mean. Uh, the local doctor, Dr. Cuss, is devoured by curiosity, it says. He's surprised to learn that Mrs. Hall doesn't even know the stranger's name. Yeah, that surprised me too. Mrs. Hall lies about it. She says, he gave me a name, uh, an assertion which was quite unfounded. But I didn't <laughs> rightly hear it. <laughs> I love her. Cuss <laughs> goes in to talk to the stranger and Mrs. Hall can hear them talking. And then she hears a cry and then a laugh. Then Cuss leaves about 10 minutes later with the stranger laughing as he leaves. And now Cuss goes straight to, to Vicar Bunting and he asks him, am I mad? Yeah, he clearly saw something messed up. Dr. Cuss explains to the vicar that he was talking to the stranger about his research and he noticed that he was sniffing a lot, like he had a cold. When the doctor entered, the man had shoved his hands in his pockets, but eventually he absentmindedly removed one of them. Yeah, and then he noticed that the sleeve was empty. Right, and he thought, oh no, he must have lost part of his arm. The doctor pointed this out and the stranger reached out with an invisible hand and tweaked his nose. This scared the doctor so much that he ran out of the room. Aha, the first act of horror by the Invisible Man was a game of got your nose. <laughs> da, da, da. Again, yeah, the fact that we know that he is the Invisible Man, it totally changes the mood of this. Like, it's kind of fun. Yeah, this is a fun and game section of this uh, book, exactly. definitely. But we do, since we don't, we're not privy to his internal life, we don't know how he got in the situation, but also we didn't know that he caught a cold. I mean, these are... Yes. These are bad things when you're an invisible man. These are the right. giveaways and the weaknesses we're learning. Uh -huh. Gets us into chapter five, the burglary at the vicarage. There's a burglary at the vicarage on <laughs> Whit Monday. Uh, Whit Monday is a day of the club festivals. Yes, and Wells recounts for us the circumstances of this crime. The vicar's wife heard footsteps and woke up her husband. He went down and he heard a sneeze. He grabbed a fire poker, but it was very dark, like four in the morning early, and he heard a rustling in the study, but he couldn't see anyone. So he found a candle that was lit and a drawer that was open, but nobody was there. The back door opened and closed. They locked the back door again and searched the house, but could find nothing. And that gets us into chapter six, the furniture that went mad. Now this is a bit of an odd opening here. Mr. and Mrs. Hall both rose and went noiselessly down into the cellar. Their business there was of a private nature and had something to do with the specific gravity of their beer. Are they doing it? If by doing it you mean microbrewing, then hell yeah. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Hall are making a really dank IPA, bro. It's sweet. <laughs> no, I kind of thought the same thing. Maybe they're getting it on down there. She forgot the sarsaparilla. So Whoa. Mr. Hall... Yeah, I guess. Whatever that's good for. Yeah. There, I don't know what that means. So Mr. Hall goes upstairs and notices that the stranger's door is ajar. He looks inside, sees the stranger is gone, and the front door is unlatched. Hmm. He also note, notes that the stranger's clothes are there. Mrs. Hall then hears the front door close and a sneeze. She goes into the stranger's room and touches his pillow. It's cold, so he's been up for a while. As she did so, a most extraordinary thing happened. The bedclothes gathered themselves together, leapt up suddenly into a sort of peak, and then jumped headlong over the bottom rail. It was exactly as if a hand had clutched them in the center and flung them aside. 
Immediately after, the stranger's hat hopped off the bedpost, described a whirling flight in the air through the better part of a circle, and then dashed straight at Mrs. Hall's face. Then as swiftly came the sponge from the washstand, and then the chair, flinging the stranger's coat and trousers carelessly aside, and laughing dryly in a voice singularly like the stranger's, turned itself up with its four legs at Mrs. Hall, seemed to take aim at her for a moment, and charged at her. She screamed and turned, and then the chair legs came gently but firmly against her back and impelled her and Hall out of the room. The door slammed violently and was locked. The chair and bed seemed to be executing a dance of triumph for a moment, and then abruptly, everything was still. Whoa, poltergeist attack. <laughs> no, we don't. Obviously, this is the Invisible Man messing with her and mm, doing this that's stuff. That's true, yeah. But why? I think he's just getting sick of these people. You is know? he just annoyed and just wants to mess with them? Because he so. kind of doesn't like them? Yeah. yeah. He gets pushed to so the brink. Well, we find out he's got a little insanity going on later, too, don't we? Yeah, yeah. of course. So Mrs. Hall runs downstairs and almost faints into the arms of Mr. Hall. She says that the stranger has put spirits into the furniture. At Mr. Fearinside's furniture shack, we put spirit into every couch and chair we make. <laughs> Want a lazy boy that punches you in the face occasionally? We got it. How about a Davenport that gropes? We've got you covered. That's the Fearinside guarantee. <laughs> So Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Hall says they should lock the stranger out and never let him return. Millie, the maid, goes to get Mr. Wadgers, the blacksmith, and then they try to figure out what they're going to do. The stranger then comes out of out of the room all wrapped up. <gasps> what? How did he get in there? This is madness. He goes into the parlor and locks the door behind him. Mr. Hall knocks on the door, but the stranger just yells, go to the devil. Which gets us into chapter seven, the unveiling of the stranger. So word about the vicarage library theft is now around the coach and horses. Mr. Hall and Mr. Wadgers, the blacksmith, decide to go to the magistrate, Mr. Shuckleforth. They think that the stranger was the guy that robbed the vicarage. Mm -hmm. At the end, they hear the stranger breaking bottles and swearing, and the villagers come to the inn to see, you know, what the heck is going on. The stranger is locked up in the parlor until noon. We're reaching critical mass with the townspeople. A lot of them are yes. here. They're all, they're all busy bodied up. Well, I mean, they, this guy's been annoying and mysterious for too long, yeah. and so now they they know something's going to finally happen. Yes. The stranger opens up the door and yells at Mrs. Hall about uh, his lack of breakfast. And she's been kind of passive-aggressive, just not feeding him or taking care of him. She wants her money. Yeah. And he gives her some money out of his pockets, and she says, that's strange how a couple of days ago you didn't have any money, implying, of course, that he sold the money. And the stranger, he stops his foot angrily. Yeah, and Mrs. Hall is finally going to get some answers. It says, before I take any bills or get any breakfast or do anything whatsoever, you got to tell me one or two things I don't understand and what nobody don't understand and what everybody is very anxious to understand. You don't understand, he said, who I am or what I am. I'll show you. By heaven, I'll show you. Then he put his open palm over his face and withdrew it. The center of his face became a black cavity. Here, he said. He stepped forward and handed Mrs. Hall something which she, staring at his metamorphosed face, accepted automatically. Then, when she saw what it was, she screamed loudly, dropped it and staggered back. The nose, it was the stranger's nose, pink and shining, rolled on the floor. Then he removed his spectacles and everyone in the bar gasped. He took off his hat and with a violent gesture tore at his whiskers and bandages. For a moment they resisted him. A flash of horrible anticipation passed through the bar. Oh my God, said someone. Then 
off they came. It was worse than anything. Mrs. Hall, standing open-mouthed and horror-struck, shrieked at what she saw and made for the door of the house. Everyone began to move. They were prepared for scars, disfigurements, tangible horrors. But nothing. The bandages and false hair flew across the passage into the bar, making a hobbledehoy jump to avoid them. Everyone tumbled on everyone else down the steps. For the man who stood there, shouting some incoherent explanation, was a solid gesticulating figure up to the coat collar of him, and then nothingness. No visible thing at all. So the cat is out of the bag. We've got an invisible man. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see that coming. <laughs> not at all. I didn't. <laughs> but he's literally invisible, not metaphorical. That's right. Wells has his fun with the mystery, but he's a good storyteller. He kind of could probably sense by this point, all right, let's go full invisible man. We know what's going on. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's time to give these people some what for. Uh, so everyone gets the hell out of there. People are running and screaming. Uh, once the people stop freaking out, they start trying to talk about what happened and make sense of what, what they saw or mm-hmm. didn't see. But people are still nuts they say it's like babel everyone is talking and nobody's nobody's listening mr hall just says that the stranger doesn't have a head like that's what he thinks is going on with the guy he doesn't think that he's totally invisible just that his head is missing and like that's an answer you know like that's (laughs) that explains things oh he doesn't have a head okay so constable jaffers says that he will arrest the stranger even if he doesn't have a head So he goes in to get the stranger who's enjoying some cheese and bread with clothes on, but still no head. So the cop gets in a wrestling match with the invisible man. (laughs) Jaffers tells Mr. Hall to grab the stranger's feet. Yeah, this whole scene is awesome. It just turns into a huge rumble. He gets kicked in the chest and knocked down. And the invisible man says that he'll surrender. So Jaffers gets out some handcuffs, but the stranger goes, look, I'm not going to put any handcuffs on. Jaffers gets to be able to look at him up close and he could see into his clothes because he's still got a shirt on. And he could see that it's just hollow inside the clothing the invisible man is toying with them too in a pretty funny way he keeps going all right all right i give up and then he'll slip off some more clothing okay okay just leave me alone for a second and then take something else off you know it's, <laughs> it's, it says the stranger ran his arm down his waistcoat and as if by a miracle the buttons to which his empty sleeve pointed became undone then he said something about his shin and stooped down he seemed to be fumbling with his shoes and socks huckster suddenly says that's not a man at all it's just empty clothes look you can see down his collar and the linings of his clothes i could put my arm he extended his hand it seemed to meet something in midair, and he drew it back with a sharp exclamation. I wish you'd keep your fingers out of my eye, said the aerial voice in a tone of savage expostulation. The fact is, I'm all here, head, hands, legs, and all the rest of it, but it happens I'm invisible. It's a confounded nuisance, but I am. That's no reason why I should be poked to pieces by every stupid bumpkin in Iping, is it? The stranger says invisibility isn't a crime, but Jaffers says burglary is, and the stranger starts to strip off the last of his clothes, but while Jaffers tries to get people to stop him before he's totally naked. I've had this happen to me so many times, you know, except <laughs> without the invisibility. That, that, you remember that Amazon woman on the moon? Oh, right. That movie? <laughs> there was that whole, with that Bigley Jr. where he's the invisible man, and he peels off all the bandages, but he's... Visible, he's but totally he thinks visible. he's invisible. He's but he's so he's jumping around naked, and it's very funny. <laughs> so a fight breaks out, and people are punched by the invisible man, and people get hurt. Jaffers has a hold of the invisible man, but he wiggles out and he escapes. Halfway across the road, a woman screamed as something pushed by her. A dog kicked, apparently yelped, and ran howling into Huckster's yard. And with that, the transit of the invisible man was accomplished. But Jaffers lay quite still, face up, knees bent, 
at the foot of the steps of the inn. Mm. And I thought, is he dead? Did he kill this guy? It could very well be. Perhaps the comedic portion of this novel is over. You'll all have to find out on the next episode of the H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> Literary Podcast, where we will cover the second part of this novel. Uh, we'll try to get these out as quickly as we can this month. Thank you for your patience due to the unforeseen circumstances. Uh, yes. And again, apologies for some of the audio fidelity. But, I don't know, it makes me sound a little like The Invisible Man. There's a hollowness to it, perhaps. Oh, yeah. It's lending like something that. to the production. I want to remind some folks about Necronomicon real quick before we get out of here. Please come check us out. The live show is on Saturday, what is it, 24th? 24th. At 12 p.m. And then we got a party that night at 8.30. They're all at the Graduate Hotel, formerly the Biltmore. Uh, we're going to be there having fun, and we hope to see you folks. It's uh, If you're paying for the convention, it's free to come to any of those events with us. Yes. It's going to be lots of fun. Hey, what about that reader? Should we thank him, you think? Oh, my God. Greg Johnson is awesome. Go check out his new album. It's on Bandcamp, Greg Johnson Music. I think if you do search for Greg and remember Greg is G-R-E-I-G. And the album is called Dr. Snake and the Snake Doctors. You can listen to it for free on Bandcamp and then buy it because you'll love it. The real humor of that title only just hit me. I don't know why. This is really <laughs> funny. Uh, I'm, you know what? I also want to thank some patrons for allowing us to continue making this show. Got a list of them here, and I'm going to start with Adam Waxman. Thank you so much. I'm going to continue with thanking Richard August. Thank you. Neil Kaplan, you are the best. Hey, Dennis Newsom. Thank you. Michael Paul Shalmo, thanks so much. Thank you. Heike Viljakainen, thank you. Hope that's pronounced right. Uh, John Burgess, thank you so much. I'd like to thank Steve Hurst. So thank you, Steve Hurst. <laughs> James Holloway of A Special Place in My Heart. James Holloway, I know him well. He's got a great podcast where he goes through the Dungeons and Dragons monster manual and talks about all the monsters and their historical background and stuff. It's really great. Even better. And I'd like to thank Sacred Spud. Patrons, thank you. you may be listening to us talk about the Invisible Man, but you are not invisible to us. We really appreciate all that you do, and thanks for continuing to make this show possible. That's all we've got for this week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!